Our Old Testament reading is Psalm 16. Psalm 16, along with a few other psalms, perhaps Psalm 73 would be among those as well. Psalm 16, a place where especially we see the soul delighting in God and placing the the joy of the Lord uh, before us and, and, and seeking it and living in light of it. So here, these words, God's holy word, Psalm 16. Miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. And Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, verse 19. We'll read through the end of the chapter. Here, once again, God's holy and inspired word. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? 
Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Baptism in many ways reminds us of the the all-encompassing call of God, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus to, uh, to put off that which is of merely of the flesh and of sin, and uh, to put on Christ and, and to consecrate ourselves by God's grace uh, to live for Him. And there are many things in the Gospels where Jesus places the, the depth of this call to, to faithfulness in discipleship before us. And, and one of the difficulties that we have as Christians in, in thinking through that is, well, does this mean that anything that sort of has to do with this earth and this world's order is something that ought to be rejected, and the only things that can be embraced are those things that we would deem as purely spiritual. In other words, is it kind of this zero-sum game? Tennis is a zero-sum game. One of the players gets the point every time, the other one doesn't. So is the Christian life kind of like that? Is it a zero-sum game? If we're kind of tipping our attention to something that we see as temporal or material, are we losing that which is found in the blessing of the spiritual. I often, as I often do, picking up wisdom from John Newton and the letters of John Newton that he, he wrote, thousands of letters to his congregants and, and Christians that he administered to. He wrote this letter to uh, two young ladies who had been under his, uh, under his ministry as young single women and then had become married. And of course, marriage and family introduces a a whole host of of new things into your life, things that demand your attention. And and so they're they're working through this uh, together. And uh, oftentimes, Christians may struggle with this. If if I'm focusing too much on that which is placed before me in the context of the home, for instance, or my job, or something else, am I losing certain things about who I am spiritually. This is what Newton says to these young ladies. He says, beware of idolatry. Husbands, children, possessions, everything by which the Lord is pleased to afford us content or pleasure are full of snares. How hard is it to love a creature just as we ought and so to possess our temporal blessings as neither to overvalue nor undervalue them. He's recognizing the the goodness in all of these things. And yet he says they, they are full of snares. If it's not helping you be pointed to your ultimate end, how quickly we can fall into idolatry. It's not a total dismissal of the good things of this world and life, but it is rather recognizing that di- the difficulty comes in rightly valuing them. And the danger of these passages that Jesus gives to us is that someone might be tempted to think that it's all a zero-sum game, that there's, there's some kind of lower goodness in 
the things like work and family and children, and the, those have a, they're on a lower tier, and as you focus on them, you're losing something spiritually, and it's going, going one way or the other. The other temptation is to say, well, really, what Jesus is calling us to is to just kind of have this slight adjustment in our mentality towards things and keep the external things of our life basically the same. None of those, neither of those things are true. God is, is not calling us to abandon nor to fail to recognize his hand and his goodness in the things that he gives to us. But the things that Jesus calls us to are not easy. The things that Jesus calls us to are not just slight adjustments in our lives. It is life-changing what Jesus calls his people to do in these passages. And so Newton goes on in this letter to say this, I wish you, these two ladies, uh, recently married, I wish you health and peace and prosperity. Good things, in other words. But above all, that your souls may prosper that you may still prefer the light of God's countenance to your chief joy, that you may still delight yourselves in the Lord, be daily hungering and thirsting after Him, and daily receiving from His fullness, that you may receive His all-sufficiency. And now here's the key. That every blessing of His common providence may come to you as a fruit and token of His covenant love. Will you use the things that are given to you through God's providence to point you towards your ultimate end, that you were made for God and His glory, to love Him, to serve Him, and to to devote all that you are to Him. And he closes by saying, and I hope that the frame of your spirits may be heavenward. Don't allow that which comes to you from God's hand to lower the frame of your spirit to merely the horizon of this world. The question before us is, what is the faithful living that Jesus commands of us in in passages like this? How do we discern that which is to be condemned, that which we are to leave behind, and that which we can embrace as tokens of his covenant love? So, three things that we'll consider uh, quickly this morning. First is this, make Christ your treasure. That's the the fundamental call that Jesus is placing before us. Make Christ your treasure. And then second, love the good things in light of the treasure. Third, leave behind those things which the treasure renders useless. First, then, choosing the right treasure. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus has just addressed this problem of seeking the praise of men. Temptation that we often have. Uh, to use the things that God gives to us in our spiritual duties and obligations, prayer, fasting, almsgiving, to use those things for the praise of men, uh, a common temptation for us. Jesus now uh, illuminates another great principle of life in his kingdom, that if we truly are to enjoy God and enjoy, uh, glorify God and enjoy him forever, then we will not idolize earthly wealth nor will we lust after comfort and ease in this life in a way that suggests, really, we are living for this life. Comfort and ease might be blessings that come from God, but if we lust after them in such a way, it shows that we really are living truly for this life, first and foremost. And it centers around this notion of a treasure. Jesus repeats that word three times in the first three verses. Not lay up for yourselves 
treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is, there your hearts will be also. What is a treasure? Matthew Henry says that what it really comes down to is that which a soul regards as the best thing. What do you find, what do you see as the best thing? Henry says this, something or other every man has which he makes his treasure, his portion, which his heart is set upon, to which he carries all he can get, and uh, which he depends upon for his future, something the soul has which it looks upon as the best thing. In other words, one's treasure is that which all other things bend to in his heart and in his life, something that everything else will bow down to. That's the treasure. It's the end for which all other things in your life are pointed towards. It becomes the master of everything else. As human beings, treasuring cannot be avoided. Treasuring is really equivalent to to worshiping. It is inevitable that something will be our treasure. It is inevitable that we will worship something. There will be something that can place demands on everything else in our lives. We, we unavoidably do this. We assign value to things. Our allocation of time and resources, the affections and the ponderings of our heart. Why? Because we were made by God as worshiping creatures. This is why idolatry is such a constant problem for us. We, were, we are idolaters in our fleshly heart because uh, we were created for worship, wired to always be worshiping something. Notice in our passage, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Now, what does that assume? That, that assumes that we all will serve one, that we were made to have the lordship of something, the throne of our hearts. In verse 32 in our passage, the Gentiles inevitably seek after the comforts and the pleasures of this life. We are to seek something else. We were made as seekers. That's why the old U2 song resonates with the human heart. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. People sense that they are, they're made to find something for which their soul longs. Jesus speaks of this very thing in the principles of his kingdom. In Matthew chapter 13, some of the kingdom parables, a man uh, found treasure hidden in a field, and he went and covered it up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Everything bowed down in his life to that field. So these words from Jesus are good cause for evaluation of ourselves this morning. Is There's something in your life other than the God of Scripture, other than Christ and His kingdom. Is there something in your life that all other things must bend to, must bow down to? In one of his pastoral memoirs, uh, Eugene Peterson uh, was speaking about, and this is a, a common temptation and problem for pastors who make the execution of their ministry an idol and uh, he, in his memoir, was, was going through this very busy season in his church. And, and uh, he was leaving his house for a meeting, as was often happening uh, at, in the evening time uh, during that stage of his life. And his young daughter, younger than 10 years old, comes up to him and says, Daddy, this is the 18th straight night that you've been gone 
from home. He knew at that moment that he needed to rework what he was doing because his allocation of time, resources, the affections and the ponderings of his heart were pointed towards something other than Christ and his kingdom and even something like his family that demanded his attention too. So what should we treasure? Well, look at Jesus' words Do not lay up treasures on earth. So we need to be aware of the the idolatry that we can have of anything in our lives, even those things which we see as good. But these words from Jesus are basically a reference to the things that are seen. In the center of his sights in this passage is material wealth, earthly possessions, food and clothing, as we see later on in in the passage. These things are that which is subject to to decay In and of itself, moth and rust destroy. It's subject to decay. It's something that can be taken. Thieves break in and steal. He lays a direct contrast to it. Do not lay up treasures on earth where these things can happen. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Already we see then the battle of faith versus unbelief. Jesus is setting something before us, and the question is, do we believe that there actually are treasures in heaven. Again, that battle, faith versus unbelief. For there can be people who sort of generally want to frame their lives around Christian principles and Christian morality, but unless you believe that there are treasures in heaven, you will not obey what Jesus says to do here. But he brings before us the wisdom of laying up treasures in heaven. Really, the beginning of our passage is a setting forth of eminent wisdom. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where, what, moth and rust do not destroy. These are things which are not subject to decay. You think of other places in the New Testament, somewhere like 1 Peter, an inheritance imperishable and undefiled, kept in heaven for you. Moth and rust don't destroy Thieves do not break in and steal. It cannot be taken away. Treasures in heaven cannot be taken from you. What a beautiful reminder. As we see oftentimes those who live in this life who have incredible wealth and it can all go in a matter of years, a matter of months, perhaps even in an instant. It can all be taken away. Jim Elliot says this very famous and just poignant phrase, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. That's what Jesus is setting before us, the wisdom of doing just that. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. You can't keep it in order to gain what he cannot lose. The call of of Christ then to lay up treasures in heaven. Well, specifically, what is that? Or what is he pointing us towards? If we go back to Psalm 16, and really all throughout the Scriptures, what we find is that treasures in heaven are centered upon the believer's close communion and satisfaction and fulfillment found first in God and the blessings that flow from Him. In your presence... There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So what do we seek as our highest good? The triune God of Scripture. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. 
We don't use Jesus Christ in order to get through the gates of heaven where all of a sudden there are all of these pleasures and satisfactions that are detached from him. He is the treasure of our souls. He is the one for whom we were made, the triune God of Scripture. And so we treasure him above all else. We treasure him as our highest good. The pleasures of eternal life, all of those things which God will pour out on us, come in the wake of delighting first in God himself. He is the treasure. Jesus also speaks of the the eye being the lamp of the body, and one of the clearest uh, lessons or calls from that is to fix our eyes on that which is our chief delight. The book of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Let your soul, let your heart be centered upon Him and all that He is. First, in the redemption that He gives to us, in the glory of the riches gained at the cross and the resurrection. Also, look to the glory of His example, the shining example that He is for us. You see, the eye that is fixed upon Christ will be the eyes of a life always pointed towards Him, always seeking to obey, seeking to follow in the example that He has given to us. Fix your eyes on Him. He is your chief delight. He is your redemption. He is your example. But the idea of redemption highlights something else that we should not miss uh, when we're speaking of all of these things. Because we find that the chief treasure in all of the universe is the triune God of Scripture. There is none like Him. He is the one for whom we were made. He is the one in whom our soul will delight. But we should not miss that it is not as though one would always assume that this God delights in us. Why? Because of our sin. Because we have, in our rebellion, separated ourselves from the one for whom we were made. And so one hymn writer captures this beautifully, which first, he first says how he has found his satisfaction in God's grace, but then highlights this problem for us. He says, let worldly minds the world pursue. It has no charms for me. Once I admired its trifles too, but grace has set me free. Creatures no more divide my choice. No one could serve two masters. I bid them all depart. His name and love and gracious voice have fixed my wandering heart. Now, Lord, I would be thine alone and wholly live to thee. But may I hope that thou will own a worthless worm like me. See, it introduces the issue that because of our sin, because of our rebellion, we look at the one for whom our soul was made, And for those who might not know the saving grace of Christ, all of a sudden, there's a moment of desperation. I was made for this one, but will he have me? It's the glory of the gospel. That the one for whom your soul was made was the one who loved you while you were still a sinner, while you were still an enemy. So that hymn ends like this. It says, Yes, though of sinners I'm the worst, I cannot doubt thy will, for if thou had not loved me first, I had refused thee still. 
The glory of the gospel is that we can search the whole universe to find that which will satisfy. But the only thing that will give us true and lasting satisfaction is the God who already loved us while we were still sinners. May Christ your treasure. Make him the chief delight of your souls. Make all other things in your life bow to him. And then this gets to the application of that principle. Our our second idea is invest in the right treasure. Invest in it. That which you see as glorious and far beyond all else, invest in that treasure. John Calvin, uh, in commenting upon this very idea in his institutes, uses the illustration of saying when when someone or, or some family determines to change their permanent place of residence, what do they typically do? They start sending their possessions before them because the anticipation of their heart is so great that they say, I'm willing to give up a temporary comfort now so that that will be waiting for me when I arrive at my new home. So I know of a family who was building a new home and they even gave up indoor plumbing for a few months. They were in a temporary dwelling and because they were such so filled with anticipation for what was yet to come, it was like not a big deal at all. And that's the principle that Jesus is placing before us, that Calvin reminds us of in his institutes. Send your treasure before you. Be filled with such anticipation for what is waiting for us, our eternal dwelling. Our citizenship is in heaven, and if you believe that, and if you believe there is treasure in heaven, invest in it. Of course, the question is, well, how do we do that? Calvin brings up that perhaps chiefly is attending to the needs that are made, uh, that we are made aware of, of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Minister to others. Matthew chapter 25, and Jesus says, when we find our brother or sister in need and minister to them, it is as if we do it unto Jesus himself. You did it unto me, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25. Calvin says this, What is devoted to our brothers out of the duty of love is deposited into the Lord's hand, and he as a faithful custodian will repay it one day with interest. He is, you you want someone who's managing your funds? Jesus is the best one. You think of ministering to our brothers and sisters in need, giving unto the work of the gospel throughout the world, That the glory of Christ might be proclaimed, that the the, the number, the fullness of the elect might be drawn in. This is where we see that it's not just kind of this minor adjustment of our mentality. What Jesus calls us to is life-changing, transformational. It does hit us in the real issues of life. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Your life will look different than someone whose treasure is on earth. It changes us. We must then also ask for wisdom to view the good things through the lens of the treasure. One pastor says this, There's a common deficiency in our love to Jesus Christ, and that deficiency is that often we love Jesus Christ as the first and the highest in a line of greats. But he is the Lord of glory, and he stands alone. He's not first on the list of the things that we treasure. He is the list. He is the treasure of our souls. We are to love many things, Probably chiefly as Christians, we are to love many people. 
but we treasure one. We worship the triune God of Scripture. We treasure Jesus Christ. There's a couple of of comments on this. What are the things that I can still look upon as, as good, as tokens of God's covenant love? Things that you can enjoy in this life while simultaneously pointing them towards their proper end or things that you can enjoy that help you be pointed towards your proper end. So family, children, as parents, how do you view your relationship with your children? Is your primary responsibility and is your deepest longing And do you think of it as one day to be your greatest joy to see your kids lay down their lives for Christ? Or are they there in some sense for you to keep them for yourself in some sort of selfish way? Are you stewarding them? Because ultimately they were made by God and for God. Will it be your greatest joy to see them respond to the call of Christ to take up their cross, to follow him. Your work you may find very fulfilling. It it may be wonderful work that you do. Does it point you to the end for which you were made? God has blessed and given um, given his blessing and commission upon many, many different walks of life. Does it daily remind you of what you were made and who you were made for? We also then must have discernment to leave, to take leave of the things which have no good in them. Uh, things that you cannot simultaneously enjoy and help be pointed towards your proper end. Things that you cannot point towards their proper end. This list will not be the same for everyone. That's why you need discernment in this kind of a thing. Jerry Bridges in his book, uh, The Pursuit of Holiness, uses the example of a young lady who is a, an elite ranked tennis player. She could not play the game without making it an idol. She knew that it was so, and so she left it as an elite player growing up. She left the game. Later in her life, she was able to come back to it and enjoy it as something that reminded her of God's goodness. The list is not the same for everyone. It will not be the same for you all throughout your life, depending on your maturity, your level of God's work in your heart. We remember all of those things. We invest in the right treasure. We pray for wisdom and discernment to see... uh, what we are to leave, and what we are to embrace. And then finally, trust in the treasure that you've chosen. Just a a couple of things here in verses 25 through 34, a very uh, famous passage that Jesus um, says here. It's really an application of the perspective. Verses 25 through 34 become a test case of whether or not we will apply and live in the perspective that Jesus calls us to. Will you lust after comfort and ease in this life? Or will you trust in your heavenly Father? Go to, towards the end of that passage. The Gentiles seek after these things, comfort and ease in this life. Why? They do so because they do not have the doctrine of an absolutely sovereign, lovingly providential heavenly Father. This is where the, the doctrine of God meets our lives. If God is absolutely sovereign... If he is lovingly providential, if he is a heavenly father, then we give ourselves in reliance and trust upon him. You see where doctrine reframes our lives. 
and all that we view uh, that comes to us. Matthew Henry says this, There is scarcely any one sin against which our Lord Jesus more largely and earnestly warns his disciples or against which he arms them with more variety of arguments than the sin of disquieting, distracting, distrustful cares about the things of life, which are a bad sign that both the treasure and the heart are on the earth. Are you often disquieted about the things of this life, this earth? What will we wear? What will we eat? Where will we live? Are you disquieted about that? Are you distracted? Does it distract you from making God your chief joy, your chief delight, from storing up treasures in heaven? Are you distrustful? Is your heart in a place where you cannot give yourself in reliance upon your heavenly Father? Thinking about him as as the heavenly Father really puts the issue before us. Does not our Father in heaven hold the earth in his hands? If he is the king of heaven, does he not hold the earth in his hands? And that's what Jesus uh, puts before us. Is not he in control? Look at the lilies of the field, the birds of the air. How much value, more value do you have, O you who have been redeemed by the blood of his Son? O you who have been saved by Christ's sacrifice. Do you believe? Do you believe there are treasures in heaven? Then invest in the right treasure. Do you believe that your heavenly Father loves you? Then trust in him and be reliant upon him. Seek the kingdom and its righteousness as we spoke of last week. We pray uh, as we pray in the Lord's Prayer that gives us that great pattern of prayer. What is at the forefront of our mind? The glory of God. Hallowed be thy name. Obedience, thy kingdom come, thy thy will be done. Daily reliance, give us this day our our daily bread. Grace-filled living, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Holiness and separation from the world. Deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation. Seek first kingdom of God and its righteousness. Uh, The seeking is something that is encapsulated for us in Philippians chapter 3. Paul, who has been made for God and redeemed to him through Jesus Christ, what is he seeking? To serve God, to enjoy him, to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Christ has made me his own, has made me uh, his own, he says. But I earnestly seek, I earnestly seek to serve him to love him all of my days. What Jesus calls us to is not just a a slight shift in mentality. Your life ought to look different if you store up treasures in heaven. May God give us the faith, the reliance, the knowledge of what he has done for us in Christ so that we live in these ways that he calls us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you For all of these things, we stand in Christ alone, and we are thankful for that in this passage where we are challenged to think about our earthly possessions in these ways. We also thank you that we have, uh, that we stand in Christ alone through the pain and the sufferings of this life. And there are those with, with, with heavy hearts for various reasons today 
And uh, we thank you for that great hope. We also thank you for those who uh, come together to share in the joy of a new life born. And uh, we thank you that our greatest joy is, is found in Christ alone as well. So make our hearts sing of these truths now in Christ's name. Amen.